Hey everyone, and welcome to episode number 41 of the Learning to Lead podcast. This month I had the opportunity to sit down with Kurt Bjorkland, who is the pastor of Orchard Hill Church. I'll read his bio and then we'll jump right into the interview. But Kurt holds a bachelor's degree in business from Wheaton College. He earned his Master of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he has a doctorate of ministry from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Prior to assuming the leadership of Orchard Hill Church, Kurt served for 10 years as senior pastor of a church in Michigan. Kurt, his wife Faith, and their four sons live in Swickley, PA. And uh, Kurt's a great guy. He's doing great things uh, in and through Orchard Hill Church. It's incredible to see how God's using him there. This is a great interview. I was honored uh, to be able to spend some time with him. I learned a lot, and I know that this uh, interview will add value to you as well. So hope you enjoy it. Hope it adds value to your life and as always if there's anything i can do for you please let me know thanks and enjoy the interview Kurt, thank you so much for this time i appreciate it and why don't we just start with you telling us about you all right thank you uh it's good to have a chance to talk with you today and uh, as far as telling about me i'm a man who's been married to the same woman for a lot of years have four sons pastor at orchard hill uh, love the local church. It's what God's called me to, and I've loved having a chance to lead and function within it for a lot of years. Yeah, that's great. So walk us through that. Walk us through the leadership journey. How did you ultimately end up here leading a large organization? You know, were you a born leader and you could have led this when you were 10, or have you had to make significant growth spurts throughout your, your walk? Well, I think any leader, whether they see it or not, recognize it or not, is always growing, always um, improving, and so I don't. I certainly don't believe I've arrived at any kind of leadership uh, place. Uh, I think I'm growing constantly. Uh, I would. I would think some of the formative things were, you know, if you if I go all the way back to my childhood, there were some things in my home that forced me into leadership young. Uh, I took leadership in high school, uh, sports, and other things very young. And so I started learning to lead, how not to lead, uh, at a young age. In college, I ended up leading, being invited into leadership in all kinds of venues. And then I started uh, into church leadership. Uh, and with that, for, for just for young leaders, did you initiate a lot of that in college? I mean, not really, like, or was no. It more it was thro- you know, yeah, no, I, I, I was, there were some things I wanted to lead in. And didn't get the opportunity to, but most of the things I ended up leading in, uh, people sought me out and uh, invited me into leadership. Once in a while, there, there was something I may have put myself forward for, but uh, not very often, actually. So, And then, uh, yeah, I started working in the church. Uh, I worked at a big church in Wheaton for a number of years. And that was an invited-in leadership role. And then I worked at a small church in the city of Chicago while I went to seminary, which was a, that was a great leadership experience. Often people underestimate the power of a small organization or opportunity. Having worked in a really large church and then a really small church, I felt like God gave me some very diverse experiences. I got to see how a large organization's run. I got to play a part in it, although certainly not a big part at that point in my life. And then I had a chance to work in a really small church and be intimately involved in so many things at a young age and to try things and learn from my mistakes. And uh, and all of those things happened. And then I went to a church in Michigan after seminary and working at a Christian college there also for a little while. And I uh, was a senior pastor for almost a decade of a church in Michigan before 
coming to Orchard Hill. That's great. Uh, talk about maybe one or two people along your journey that have had a significant impact, and how specifically did they impact you as a leader? Oh, that's a great question. You know, the two people who've probably influenced me the most are a man named Rick Iglesias. He was the college pastor of the large church I mentioned in Wheaton, Wheaton Bible Church. And he really, I think, saw potential in me, or at least that's what he says. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure it existed. Uh, and he, he invested in me and gave me opportunities and was a true mentor to me in those young years. And so much of how I approach ministry today, how I've learned about ministry came from Rick. Uh, I can't under, I can't overstate how much he's, he has impacted me. And then probably a second person was a man named Leighton Ford. Uh, Leighton was Billy Graham's brother-in-law and was for years involved in crusade evangelism with Billy. And his son died. Uh, sometime in the 80s. So his son was older than, than I was. Uh, his son was 21 when he died. And when his son died, he decided to move on from crusade evangelism and just mentor young leaders. And I became one of the people that he chose to mentor for a couple of years. And at that time, I was pastoring in Michigan, and I was really running up against a lot of my own lids uh, in terms of my emotional and spiritual resources and maturity and Leighton really helped me understand those things and move move in directions that were helpful. And I've stayed in touch with Leighton and Rick both to this day and, and can still call them and, and reach out to them when there's when there's a need. That's great. Can you talk about maybe the, the structure of those relationships? It sounds like they're both mentor relationships. Because I think sometimes young leaders view a mentorship as like, me sitting here with you, you putting up a chalkboard, and you teaching me lessons for an yeah. hour. Is that what those relationships look like, or what? How did? Rick, how did they yeah, Rick was uh, Rick was very informal, especially at first, and then I worked for Rick directly. Uh, he hired me, which in hindsight was as much a charity job. It was an investment job in me as it was he was getting something back. Um, but he. So then there became more formal things like one-on-one meetings. Hey, let's read this book together. Let's do this. Let's do that. But he was consistently the initiator in that, which, uh, again, in hindsight, I think a lot of times older leaders wait for younger leaders to initiate. And it was helpful to have an older leader take the initiative with me. And then Leighton was very structured. That was set up to be structured. That was a structured relationship program with key learnings and everything right along the way. But again, I think what what moved that from just being a program that I went through into something more was Leighton taking a personal interest and getting to know me and investing in me personally. That's good. Um, you talked about Leighton, how he, he recognized lids in your life or helped you recognize them or helped you break through them. Everett, what are you doing to continue, and what have you done to continue to grow and develop as a leader? It sounds like you've had to make several jumps and work through several lids. What do you do to actually work through those? It's a good question. That wasn't on your list. Um, the, uh, um, that's good. You're you're ad libbing. I like it. Uh, the uh, the you know that's a that's an interesting question in the sense of I don't know that that you can formally other than inviting feedback that you can formally try to get to your lids, what will happen generally for any leader is you'll keep bumping up against something over and over, 
And sooner or later, you'll have to say, why do I keep bumping up to this? And then you will have a choice to make. Either I'm going to honestly face this and get help from somebody or somewhere to identify this, to, to grow through this, and it's usually painful. Or I will deny it and I'll blame other people. I'll blame my circumstances. I'll say, you know, I, had, I was talking to somebody not long ago about their church and the person was talking about the worship in their environment. And the person said, well, it's just the people in this town. They just don't worship. And, uh, and, and I almost laughed out loud. It's like, really? So, so, so like everywhere else in the country, people worship, but in this town, they don't worship. And, and I wanted to say, it sounds like you've, you know, hit, hit a lid here. And, but as funny as that is, I know there have been lots of times where I've probably made excuses and said, well, it's this, it's that, it's something else. It isn't me. Uh, but a lot of times if we, um, ask for feedback, we'll see, we'll start to see a pattern in a lid and be able then to identify it. And then it really takes intentional growth to say, okay, why do I have this particular lid? And then what can I bring to bear uh, resource-wise to help me? The other thing that's really helpful, Doug, is is some counseling. Uh, I can't say this enough. I think as leaders, you want to believe a lot of times that you have all your stuff together. You want your followers to believe that you have all your stuff together. And... And the reality is sometimes a third party in an hour or two of time can help you identify and put words to things that you may not be able to see or put words to and can move you ahead exponentially. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal counselor. It could be an informal friendship, but you need a truth teller who can who can understand and cut through your defenses and, and get you to respond to, to something. That's good. So you talked about resources in a situation. We're surrounded in a room of books. I can tell you you're a reader. Um, talk to us about maybe some resources that have helped you. If you had to suggest any books that for young leaders to read, what would they be? Or any other resources now that there's so much audio out there, et cetera. But I'd love to hear resources that you suggest. Yeah, resources are interesting. I do read. I try to read a couple leadership books a year. I try to read a theology book every year. I try to read on teaching every year um, and, you know, ministry trends, things like that. Um, and maybe this is a function of my age and stage of life, so this may sound like the cranky old guy, but the... Um, I, I, the, the books I'm reading recently all seem to say the same things as the books I read 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so I'm, I, I've grown weary, even though I still read the new books all the time, because I don't want to not be conversant with the current literature. Um, probably one of the best books is, uh, you know, it's an old one. It's secular. It's The Leadership Challenge by Kuzes and Posner. Um, if you're just looking for a generic good, what does a leader do? How does he do it? Um, I love Bob Beale's little book, um, 30, what is it, 30 Days to Confident Leadership or 30, um, what's that? Uh, yeah, 30 Days to um, Confident Leadership. Is a, is a great little book. There's a, you know Gary McIntosh, the Dark Side of Leadership, uh, Hans Fizzle, the Ten Mistakes Leaders Make. And they're all they're all great books. They all make great uh, case. And it really probably depends where each person is in their leadership journey. And probably what I would recommend even more than just generic books is to say where where in my leadership am I not strong right now. Um, and not necessarily just go to the weak spot because obviously there's a lot in the strengths literature today that talks about finding your strength and working through that instead of always addressing your weakness. What's, what's challenging about that for a leader is if you're not good at 
vision casting. You can't just say, well, I'm not good at vision casting, so I'm not going to cast vision. Um, you still have to be able to cast vision somehow um, as a leader. And so, and so you want to lean into what you're good at, but you also want to find some of those areas where you say, how could I improve this area of leadership and understand what that, what that means? Uh, one of the areas I know that I've grown in over the years is confronting um, people who aren't doing their role as well as they could. Um, that took a long time for me to learn how to do well. And uh, I read a lot, thought a lot about that issue in order to learn. I talked to other leaders who had done it. Were you afraid um, to hurt the, uh, hurt the feelings of your people guy? Or? Well, and, and I think in any church or organization, the reality is, yeah, it's, there's that. And then there's also everybody has, a, has somebody who likes them. So if you alienate somebody by, um, by confronting their behavior, then you end up alienating the people that like that person. Uh, and, so, and, and so there's a fallout a lot of times. But I think I've come, uh, one of the things that's happened to, at the church that I first went to in Michigan, I went there and there was a worship leader uh, who was on staff part-time, small church. And... And the guy, uh, the, one of the first weeks I was there, I, I went in and said, oh, here's what I'd like for the service. And he said, well, you're not going to plan the service. I plan the service. <laughs> and you teach, and I'll plan the service. And I said, well, that's not how I envision this working. I envision that if I ask you to do something, you, you'll do it. And he's like, no, that's not how it's going to work. And, oh, and, uh, and so we ended up having a confrontation. I ended up letting him go. Uh, you know, I was on staff here. You know, I was the new pastor. I was on staff less than, less than two months when this happened. And what happened, though, was, and I didn't know any of this ahead of time, is his bad behavior had been so pervasive in the organization that when I actually confronted it and dealt with it, people started coming up to me and just saying, thank you for dealing with this. Nobody's, nobody's dealt with this guy for years, and now you finally have, have dealt with it. And uh, whether or not that is a good analogy of that, but it, it taught me something about the need to not let something go unchecked. Yeah. And I, if that guy were listening to this podcast, I doubt he will, but he would say that I came in with too much power and uh, you know tried to shoot him and everybody else down. And and that's you know I understand that and I understand how that uh, plays uh, for people also. And those are some of the balances that you have to make as a as a leader is deciding what times do you step back and let people do what they're put in place to do and when do you assert yourself. I felt like control of the worship service was a worthwhile thing for me to uh, assert myself in. Yeah. So I think confrontation is for everyone. I know for me, that's definitely something I can grow. And any tips that you've learned since you've studied it? Any insights? Yeah. It doesn't get better if you wait. <laughs> uh, so deal with it now and document stuff. That's another thing I would say. I'm sure people know that. But uh, if you're going to confront, write it down, send an email afterward that says, hey, we had this conversation. Here's what, here's what we agreed to. Please email me back by such and such a time if I have this wrong. And... And that way you have something to refer back to. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people. And then you come back later and say, hey, I thought we said this. And they say, no, you said that. And you're sure you said one thing. They're sure you said another. And so I found that uh, documenting writing after the fact, after the conversation, is, is really helpful 
in terms of keeping things clear and uh, straightforward. That's good. Talk about failure. Uh, you don't have to run through your list. It seems like every leader I said said every interview says they could be here all day with that list. But what have you learned about failure in all your years of ministry and leadership? Failure, if it's not moral or trust failure, and by trust failure I mean where people stop trusting you because of character or moral issues, is not a bad thing. Failure means that you're trying some things, that you're reaching uh, to your limits. So I think I would say I've learned not to fear failure and to own up to failure quickly. Don't be afraid to acknowledge that it happens and then do something differently um, quickly. But if you're not failing, you're probably not trying enough in in some area. If you don't have something that's that, that isn't working. That's good. We were talking earlier about kind of your journey, and uh, you used to work 78-hour, 70-to-80-hour weeks in your one ministry, and you were doing everything, 22 weddings uh, a year. What have you learned about balancing family and ministry? I think that's a challenge for everybody. But Yeah, yeah, and I certainly didn't work that much every week. That, those were weeks with weddings and lots of other responsibility where, you know, I would include in that time things like being at the wedding reception and some of that. So, sure. so it's not like I sat behind a computer for 70 hours. Right. Um, and, and, and that's actually something that's uh, worth a comment here, especially yeah. if somebody's a pastor who listens. There's a... There's a there's an easy perception in ministry that you're working a lot more than you actually are, and to give credit to yourself for hours that you would probably invest even if you weren't the pastor. Meaning, when I talk about working 70 hours or something, and I say, "Well, I was at these weddings." Now, clearly, if you're not the pastor, you wouldn't necessarily be at the wedding every time, or maybe not all 20 of them, but probably 15 of them that year I would have gone to as a friend. And I would have been at the wedding reception anyway. And so for me then to turn around and be like, oh, I work 70 hours, um, can sometimes be disingenuous. Although it's all legitimate too because it's all an aggregate demand. Uh, what What I've come to in terms of family and balance is that the family stuff goes on my schedule first and the church stuff second. And that is what I've tried to live, is just to say, if I, can, if I can knock out the time that I know that I need to be where I need to be uh, with my kids, with my wife, then... Um, but that's still a work in progress, and I think anybody who, who is called and driven in ministry at all, uh, driven may not be the best word, but will feel a tension in that. And and I probably worry more about people who don't feel any of the tension because then they've they've either given up on having a strong family and they've just given into the ministry or they've given up on on the calling that God has given. Because if you're doing ministry well, there will always be more ministry than there is time. And and it doesn't matter if you're in a small church, large church, you know, small department, big department. And so you're you you will always have that tension if you're if you're working if somebody doesn't it means that they've just kind of given up on something that's good um it's become one of my favorite questions how do you process pain as a leader both you obviously walk people through a lot of pain in their lives and in their darkest moments how does that affect you how do you actually work through that without going crazy or getting depressed or that's a good question. I have not thought about that in some time. You are certainly 
confronted with a lot of pain, and I've said this to people, uh, you know, people that have worked here at Orchard Hill with me or other places, if you ever get too used to it, you probably need to change jobs. Um, sometimes my heart should be broken for the person that, you know, you're sitting with who's going through a painful circumstance, and if it isn't, then then you've become too perfunctory at the, at the, at the job or the duty. Uh, the flip side of that is you can't go to the depths with every issue because you would spend all your time in the depths of pain with people. And so there has to be a, a, a professional detachment while still having a personal investment, if that makes sense. And, and in terms of how I process it, I think theologically, it's also pretty important that you have an underpinning of how you understand God's sovereignty in the midst of pain and sin in a broken world. If those things aren't solid in your own mind, um, then you'll also have a theological crisis with painful circumstances rather than being able to understand them in the, in the bigger scope. You know, one of the things that people... One of the biggest questions people ask all the time is, why would God let this happen? Where was God in this? And, and it's a very American question. It's a very self-centered question, but it's a very understandable question. And, and ultimately, it's theology that answers the question, not experience. And we want experience to answer the question instead of theology. What do you mean by that? Expound. What I mean is we want to see God change our circumstance so that we can say God is good instead of saying God is good even in the midst of, of something that's hard. And, and the American side of that is we believe that we are entitled to a pain-free, increasingly economically prosperous, healthy life. And if we don't have it, we often say God has somehow let me down. In fact, there's whole theological movements that that basically say that, that say, you know, God wants you to be healthy, happy, and prosperous. And so if you're not, you're somehow in disobedience, you're in sin. Uh, That would not be my theological perspective, but I think it often leads people to very painful things because now you have a double pain. You know, all of a sudden you get cancer. Not only do you have the pain of facing cancer, but you have the pain of I somehow have sinned or let God down because I have cancer and God wouldn't have given me cancer if, if I weren't somehow a failure or God somehow let me down. And so, and so now you've compounded the I'm sick or my loved one's sick or somebody got hurt or somebody divorced me or left me to, um, to this whole idea of my theology and my idea of God and it, um, and, and so I think that becomes, and, 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 and that movement, that way of thinking is pervasive in every system of religious thought because a lot of times the reason people come to God is they can't, they, they say, I need something beyond myself to manage life. And that's right and good. And, and, and so it's based on, on, a, on a noble attempt, but it often is theologically taken to a point where it becomes counterproductive in somebody's life. That's good. Uh, so as a leader of a large church, I guess I know a lot of people go to your church. And so you have business leaders in your church. Do you ever get intimidated? This is just, I, I just, this came to my head. Do you ever get intimidated by business leaders? So, I mean, same thing at Light of Life. We have a lot of, of high-end donors, etc. Talk about leading business leaders from a, a ministry leader perspective. Has there ever been tension there, or is this a bad question? No, it's uh, that's a good question. I think... 
I think the answer to that is yes and no. It's yes in that in that I think if if you're leading anybody, you will always have people who have competences competencies and things that are way better than yours. And so you'll always have a sense. I mean, I have one lady here who routinely will correct my grammar uh, after a message. And you know what I learned at first? I thought, what in the world? And then I learned she really wants me to succeed. She's trying to help me. And, and so now I thank her and say, thank you for pointing that out because hopefully in the next service I'll say that correctly. Um, if you get intimidated by somebody who has perfect grammar and you don't, um, there's a healthiness to that to say, man, she can, you know, she teaches English. She knows when I dangle an infinitive. Um, and I may not get that. Uh, that's okay, but then there's also a sense in which you say, but I'm not called necessarily to impress her with my grammar. My calling is to teach the Word of God in this context, and therefore I shouldn't be intimidated by anybody or anything. And so I think there's a yes and a no to that. Um, I remember, uh, you know, teaching not long ago and, uh, there was something on creation and I later found out that, you know, sitting in our church, we had experts on both sides of kind of the creation evolution debate, like literal experts who had written, written scholarly academic journals and things that have gone on both sides of the issue. And I thought, how crazy is that, that, that I'm standing up here trying to teach on creation and I have people who are well-schooled on both sides sitting here who could easily talk circles around me. So, sure, there's an intimidation in that moment, but then there's also a moment where you say, you know what, I'm here to teach what, what I have seen in the Word, and, and you know, now, now they get the chance to respond to it. And that's, uh, I think your confidence has to transcend your own ability, or, or you'll always be intimidated. Your confidence has to rest in your calling and in and in the Word of God, in the character that God has has birthed, um, and uh, and so you'll be back and forth. I have noticed with leadership, if if something's not right in your own heart and life, you will lose confidence. Um, and what I mean by that is you'll you'll hedge. You'll, you'll pull back because you'll know intuitively that you're either that or you'll overcompensate with bravado. Um, and, but usually that's spotted by people too. Okay, let's transition to talk a little bit to, to young leaders. Um, what do you guys do at Orchard Hill to initiate? You talked about initiating as, as mentor young leaders uh, and intentionally develop them. Well, we try throughout all of our ministries to always have people who are who are growing into leadership, and so it's really as simple as inviting anybody who shows aptitude and desire into the leadership game at some level, and then what you hope is that people show competencies and character and consistency over time, and that and that they can continue to grow in their leadership circle and responsibility. We've been really blessed here with with great leaders across the organization so that's um and people coming uh all the time who who have leadership gifts that's great what are some of those competencies or uh, attributes that you look for in young leaders well i heard bill hybels teach this years ago he said you know he always looks for character competence and chemistry uh that might be overly simplistic but there's an awful lot of wisdom in those three things and just saying I'm looking for somebody who demonstrates Christ-like character, consistency in that, 
somebody who shows some real skills and uh, and then somebody who clicks with our organization and us interpersonally. That's good. Where do you see young leaders missing it most often or getting off track? Hmm. That's a that's an interesting question. Um, it, you know, I hesitate to answer young leaders because I don't want to characterize a group. Sure, it can just be leaders. And uh, because I think uh, I think a lot of times it. Um, one generation can look at another generation and say, oh, look at that, look at that. But um, the one of the things I've seen over time, and I don't know that, again, I don't think this is unique to young, quote-unquote, leaders, but a lot of times when people start, there will be a sense of entitlement. And uh, an entitlement shows itself in a lot of places, but it's the it's the idea of saying, I'm here now, I'm ready, give me more, and if the organization would give me more leadership, I'd be a great leader, but the organization holds me back, or my boss holds me back, or my supervisor holds me back. And instead of saying, let me show up, let me work hard, let me prove what I can do, and and demonstrate um, leadership. And I think when when leaders, emerging leaders, bring value to the organization, usually they're invited more and more up to higher levels of leadership. And when they come with an entitlement attitude, they're often they often do get stopped because people say you haven't you haven't proved yourself yet to take the next step. And a lot of times younger or emerging leaders don't want to wait. They feel ready today. And sometimes they are ready, and sometimes that's a, I think we said this before we started recording, I said this, I forget if it was then or earlier, but a lot of times that's a God-given urge to say I want to lead more, and so I don't see that as a bad thing, to say I feel called to eventually lead more, but I still think there can be an entitlement with that rather than a let me, let me lead where I am today as absolutely, um, as absolutely, um, uh, with excellence as I can. Yeah. Can you share a story about Charles Stanley? Because in your journey, how you were feeling similar when you were like 26 years old? Because I thought that was a great insight, especially now that you're on the other end looking back. Um, if you could share Yeah. That. Yeah, I think I would said, Doug, to you earlier uh, that I heard Charles Stanley once say, and I was young, I was you know probably in my 20s at the time leading, uh, he said, you know, a lot of you young guys will want to be pastors of a church of 5,000. And he said, let me tell you something. You can't handle the pressure. And I remember at the time being kind of offended. Like, what do you mean I can't handle the pressure? Like, you're the man who can handle the pressure, but I can't. And and in hindsight, I understand what he was saying. And that is you a lot of times think you're ready for something. And, and sometimes you'll get an opportunity, maybe even before you're ready, and you're in over your head, and God will use that and grow you through that. But there's, there's some wisdom to saying, right now God's developing something in me and he'll invite me higher when, if, high, if higher is even the right word. I, I, I would push back even on that statement. I don't believe that being at a bigger church is higher. Um, uh, I think that being at a bigger church is just different. Uh, being in a small church may be God's highest calling. And a lot of times is harder and more demanding on a person and calls for better leadership, more spiritual um, maturity than sometimes being in a big church, and so I, even that's not the right phraseology. But but yes, when you want something, you definitely have to look at why do I want that, 
And sometimes when you get it, you may find out that you didn't want it as much as you thought you did too. Um, and I think that's what Charles Stanley was saying about the pressure. When you're in a bigger church, there's, you know, whatever pressure you feel now, it's just magnified. You just have more and more of it is all that you end up with. And, um, and there's a lot of advantages to that, but it's, yeah, it's different. That's great. This is real open-ended, but if you could give any advice to young leaders, what would it be? Lead well where you are. Um, cultivate your soul. You cannot lead people where you do not yourself go. Um, so worry about your own walk with God and developing your heart for God. Um, people will ultimately become more moved by what you are than what you say or do. And so focus on that first. I, I had a lunch with a pastor of a church that's substantially bigger than Orchard Hill a while back, and he said something that was interesting to me. I don't know that it's true. This was his observation, but he said, he said, 80% of the people at your church will base 100% of their um, perception on your countenance. And he was saying that to me as a senior pastor. And I thought about it, and I thought, and he said, you know, what we tend to do is we live in the 20%, all the people who are involved in this this and that and the other thing and all the drama that goes on. He said, said 80% of your people, they show up on the weekend, and what they care about is what's your countenance. And that's what they'll base their perception on. And, and, and the reason I mention that is, is you can't fake your countenance over time. You can be like, hey, I'm happy, I'm this, I'm that. But, but that's not, that doesn't transfer. If you're joyful, if you're serene, if you have an identity that's rooted in Christ rather than in idols and in other things, sooner or later that becomes something that people sense the, the reality of it and it moves things forward. And I think sometimes... When I was a younger leader, it was, okay, let me see how I can get from this level to this in terms of moving an organization rather than saying, let me, let me be who God called me to be. And I, that sounds really simplistic, and I know that can be abused by leaders too, where it's I just need to be who Jesus wants me to be and I don't need to move anything forward. And you clearly need to still have results and move things forward. And, you know, it's not like you should sing Kumbaya all day and, you know, hang out by the fire, but... But you, but that can get neglected so quickly in spiritual leadership because there's so much to be done and so many tasks that, that, that we don't let that be our first calling. And so I would, I would encourage anybody who's starting in leadership to, to focus on that and then leading well right where you are and let God take care of the, the next steps. That's excellent. Last few questions, all, all personal. One, you wrote a book, so I want to give your book a plug. So, Thank you. Yeah, I wrote a book called uh, Prayers for Today a couple of years ago, and it's basically a prayer um, journey, prayer devotional. Uh, what I found even as a pastor, pastor of a large church, medium-sized church, small church, prayer was not always easy. Uh, a lot of times I prayed, but it was God help me, God do this, God do that, God we need, and I knew there was more to that, and so I uh, began just collecting some written prayers. And I did not come from a liturgical background. I came from an unchurched background into a low church tradition. So things like written prayers did not have any baggage for me, but I found that they helped me uh, connect spiritually with God rather than um, just kind of an open-ended prayer, and that they then opened me up to prayer. And so this is basically a prompt with with written prayers of other people down through the centuries, uh, many modern, some from, you know, generations ago, and then some scripture and then some prompts to help 
to help us pray. And, uh, and it really grew out of just my own devotional journey and how I uh, spent time praying. I just started writing these things down as I would find them and then praying them and putting scriptures with them and then uh, found that they were helpful when I let other people in them and, and then was able to put them together into a, a book that Moody Press published. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And I'll include a link to the book in the show notes. Um, out of everything you've accomplished up to this point in your life and ministry, what are you most proud of? Um, wow. I don't know. I, I'm not that proud of that much, in all honesty. <laughs> I'm proud that, and proud isn't the right word, I'm thankful that as of right now, my kids appear to like me and want to be in relationship with me. I'm thankful that my marriage is stronger than it was when we were first married. I'm thankful that I've had the opportunities to teach and lead at the level I have. Um, and I do see it as a as an opportunity and a blessing um, and a responsibility. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, the longer I do this, the more convinced I am that, that there's two things that are simultaneously true that are, that are seemingly opposite. One is that it all depends on the leader and leadership and none of it depends on the leader. It's all God. And, and so what I mean by that is my job is to show up and work, work really hard and do my best. But I am doing things basically the same way I did them 20 years ago when I started. And I was in a church of 100 people that appeared to be going nowhere and didn't go anywhere for a long time, uh, as I do today. And I don't believe that, um, that I've necessarily done anything. I mean, sometimes it's just Spirit of God, Wind of God, Spirit that, that moves things forward. Um, but having said that, I also know that leadership does matter and it moves things forward. And so, uh, I know those are contradictory, but as a result, I don't feel, I don't feel a lot of ownership for whatever has been accomplished in the places I've been. I feel like God has done that. And, and I feel like, like all I have done is shown up week after week and tried to do the, the things that that were right and obvious in front of me. That's great. Last question. What do, uh, where do you see yourself in 15 to 20 years and ultimately looking back on your life, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to be remembered for? Um, I would hope in 15, 20 years, if God allows that I'm still pastoring Orchard Hill Church and, um, you know, that, that that's been a great experience for the church and for uh, people in Pittsburgh. Um, I never want to completely box in what God may do. That's a long time to project into the future, but I don't really see another step in my life at this point. Uh, I'm young enough that, that, you know, I, if, if just numbers work, I've got more than 20 years to still serve and lead. Um, but I could die in a year. So, um, and as far as legacy, really what I want is to, is to be able to say that I finished without, without, um, without losing passion. Uh, I see leaders a lot of times who, who are passionate at the beginning, and then when they get into the middle or the end, um, are disillusioned and they just mail it in, or they quit, or they, or they give in and stop uh, following hard after Christ. I would like to, I'd like my legacy to be that you know for. 
40, 45 years, I showed up and did what God called me to do to the best of my ability and um, was faithful. I, I would hope that that would be, be the legacy. That's great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. This was excellent, and uh, appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Doug. Yeah.